Well, good morning, everybody. If you are a visitor, I am not our regular teaching pastor, so you're going to have to settle for me this week, but I encourage you to visit where you do get to hear Pastor Rourke preach. Well, if if you know anything about Tri-City, it's we know how to honor fathers, and so we have decided to have the only non-father on staff preach on Father's Day and not preach primarily about fatherhood, but I hope that you fathers who are here are going to be well-served in understanding the love of the Lord for us. As we were praying before the service for you guys for the preaching of the word, for the worship of the Lord, I was reminded by Mike Kelly that uh, the word love has become a very diluted term. And as I was studying for this sermon, I was, I was convicted even of how little the word love is in my common language with believers. And that's not the inclination that you get from Scripture that love should be so little in our language. I want to read for you from John chapter 13. We're going to be hovering around this text for this morning. A little disclaimer, if you really like sermons that work through a, a text that you can follow very chronologically, as I do, uh, this sermon's going to be a little different. Being able to do a one-off sermon, I kind of get to teach on something that I've been wanting to study and have been passionate about, and so we're going to be in a broader part of Scripture, but this is really the goal, is to understand this statement from Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Paul will tell the Corinthians that of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. He'll tell the Colossians to above all put on love because love binds everything together in perfect harmony The Apostle Peter will say to above all put on love because love covers a multitude of sins. Really, the chief ethic of the Christian life is love. If faith is the core, if faith is the substance of the Christian life, the evidence is love, right? The logic of of James is that you cannot show me your faith. You cannot show me positionally where your trust is in, but you can evidence it by your works, by your love by your deeds. And for love to be so central in the mind of the Bible itself, in the mind of God for what it looks like to be a believer, this command that the Lord gives us that we are to love one another should not be taken lightly. And this morning, I think part of the problem, part of our problem is that we have an inferior, you know, inadequate view of what Jesus says after he gives his command. He qualifies it with a very important statement, and that is, as I have loved you, right? If you're an astute student of Scripture, and you hear Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, you should love one another, you might be like, hold on, Jesus, Leviticus tells us to love one another. Six of the Ten Commandments tell us how to love one another. Jesus, you've just recently talked to the Pharisees, and when they said, what is the greatest commandment, you said, love God, and the second is like it, that you love one another, So what does it mean that you're saying I'm giving you a new commandment to love one another? This is the first time we have, as I have loved you. 
And this morning, I want to give special attention to that condition. The rest of the Bible seems to put great importance on understanding that. You know, Ephesians 5, very practical. Wives or husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church. Okay, there's a very important prerequisite to that love. I need to understand how Christ loved the church. It tells me how I am to love my wife. Right? What about Jesus being compared to a wife even in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, wives submit to your husbands even as the son in his incarnation took on flesh and submitted to the father. Okay, well, the way I as a wife would think about my submission, I have to understand a little bit about Jesus' active love and coming and being incarnate in the flesh. So there's a premium on getting it right. You know, when I think through church history, there's certain figures that stand out with particular insight on the certain things of the Lord, right? There's certain saints that we remember for particular reasons, right? If we think of John Calvin contemporarily, we probably think of his five points of Calvinism, right? Really a term that came later on, and contemporary to Calvin, he probably would have been remembered for how much he held to the importance of the doctrine and getting right the Holy Spirit and worship. That's what he would probably be remembered for if you read all of what he said. When I think of love in church history, there's a particular character that stands out in my mind, and his name is Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish minister. He was born in 1600, and of his works that have been reproduced and we can read, his most famous and most consistently reprinted are his letters. It's called the, they're called the letters of Samuel Rutherford, and they're different letters written to various recipients. But what becomes very clear in these letters is that he is so gripped and compelled by the love of Christ for him in every circumstance. Sometimes it doesn't even feel like it fits what he's talking about. He fits in the love of the Lord for him and his love for the person he's writing. Samuel Rutherford when uh, Charles Spurgeon was talking about him, he said that he wrote the nearest thing to inspiration that could be found in the mere writings of men, right? And later on, another minister would say that his writing, his letters had every part of poetry except the form, right? It was just saturated with this love of the Lord. And if we're going to give our attention to understanding the love of Jesus for us, and we want to be those who are characterized by the way we talk about the love of the Lord, and more importantly, the way we acted out one to another, then I think that the Apostle John would be our best guide in doing so. I think there's a great argument to be made that the Apostle John was the most enamored with the love of the Lord and the way that he wrote and the way that he thought and just the way that he references it. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? And I don't think he's making an exclusive claim. Like, Jesus liked everyone else, but he loved me. I think it's become so part of his identity of who he is that he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when he writes his epistle, his first epistle, his favorite reference to the church, do you guys know what he calls them? The beloved. Right? This is his favorite reference to them. He says, to the elect lady whom I love in his second epistle and to the beloved Gaius who I love in his third epistle, it's very crucial to the theology of John that we are the recipients of God's love. And therefore, the way we view each other is that way, as recipients of the love of the Lord. 
I find it very interesting if you just look up how many times the word love is used in the Bible, the only books that rival the writings of John would be the book of Psalms, which has an inherent advantage being the longest book and being poetry, and then the book of Song of Solomon, again, an inherent advantage being about marriage. So why in the, in the life of John, when he writes about Jesus's work on earth, does he write so much about love? Because he is clearly gripped by the love of the Lord for him. If you look at the structure of John's gospel, I love John. He has two disclaimers in his gospel saying that this isn't everything that could be said, right? If I were to say everything about Jesus that could be said, the world couldn't hold the books. So John chose what he wrote very specifically, and he says, I chose all these stories, all these things, and I said it the way I said it, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you may believe What's very interesting is John takes 25% of his gospel to talk about five hours in the life of Jesus. So if, Jesus, if, if John's goal is to give us beginning to end, what did Jesus do for us? Why does he spend so much time on these five hours, and what five hours are they? It's the upper room discourse. It's the night that Jesus would be betrayed. And I want to focus our time on that because John focuses time on it. He gives quite a bit of his consideration, and you find so much of the theology of John that you find elsewhere in this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. So the simple goal is to understand the love of the Savior for us so that we can love one another. And we're going to specifically be looking at the upper room discourse. So I'm going to pray over the longest intro there ever was. Lord, I pray that you would captivate our hearts and our minds afresh, Lord. I pray that your love would be so pressing on our hearts and on our minds that it could only but flow outward into our relationships. God, I pray that we would see the high stakes that you have placed on our love for one another. I pray that as we consider how you have loved us, Lord, that we would be so inclined to love you and love one another, Lord, that we would be thinking about how to do it, that we would be diligent in that application, that it would not stay in our minds, but that because we have meditated on how you have loved us, that we would obey you, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen. John closes the canon as the last living apostle on an island imprisoned, And I want you to imagine kind of being in the church at that stage. Persecution is ramped up. The apostles are passing on. And Jesus writes through John a few letters to the seven churches in Asia. And far and away, the most privileged church of those seven was the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus had... The Apostle Paul teaching there longer than anywhere else that he taught. Very good reason to believe that that's where the Apostle John would end up. And if the Apostle John ended up there, the mother of our Lord probably ended up there. Apollos taught there. And what Jesus writes to that church is he says, I I am very, you know, I'm happy that you guys are standing up against false apostles and that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. It's not inconsequential, but I have this against you. 
And he says, I have this against you that you have forgotten or lost your first love. And it's a very simple but kind of crushing indictment of the church of Ephesus. And I don't want to be a church that's known for all the things that we know, but then our our reputation is that we are failing at something as simple as the, the new commandment from our Lord. I made a disclaimer prior about we're not going to work, you know, through chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, and I hope some of you are relieved that I'm not going to try to do that. But I do want to start with some kind of structure. The goal is to see the love of Christ for us in in three chronological categories. His love for us before he came, his love for us when he came, and his love for us since he's come. Those three categories, before, during, and after. We need to start where John starts. If you look at the very beginning of John, he starts off his gospel not with the birth of Jesus, but with Jesus in eternity past, right? He says, in the beginning was the Word, right? Obviously, borrowing that language that invokes Genesis to us. In the beginning, when there was nothing but God, there was Jesus. And the beginning for John starts there, and he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The the eternal Son came to the world on a mission, The first thing we learn about the love of the Lord, really in the theology of John, is that John John teaches us that Jesus' love is a choosing love. It's a choosing love, and in the same regard, it's a given love. There's this synonymous idea in John's thinking that the Lord chooses, Jesus chooses those who the Father gave him. And Jesus will flip back and forth in this language, Lord, I have all that you have given me. I've kept the ones that you have given me from before the foundation of the world, right? John will teach us that the Father must call, and if the Father doesn't call, then no one will come, and all who come to him will be forgiven. And so this love is a choosing love, and if you look in the beginning of chapter 13, this is our context. This is Jesus sitting down with his disciples. He says, now, Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper." Jesus has this identity, this understanding of who is his own. Jesus knows his own. Jesus knows the mission that he came to fulfill. Jesus knows that he is the son sent to save those whom the Lord called. Within this upper room discourse, he would say that these are his who were in the world. If you flip over to John 15, verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me. Verse 19 of the same chapter, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus prays particularly for his disciples and 
this great high priestly prayer, John 17, 6. It says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Again, this out of the world notion. And in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So again, this language of the Lord gave to the Son, the ones that the Son chose, and all who call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And in the same regard, we have the, the great well-known verse in John 3, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes. So there's no incongruity that the Lord chooses and the Son chooses and whosoever believes will be saved. It's not for Christians to try to get into the dimension of who did the Father choose. It's for us to bring the message free to everyone. We have no bearing on deciding who gets to hear the message. And I think one of the great examples of that is in John 13, when Jesus gives this illustration of him washing the disciples' feet, this illustration that Jesus had to become a servant so that they can be washed. He washes Peter's feet, the one who would betray him and deny him. Or he, he washes Judas's feet, the one who would turn him in and have him killed. And so that free grace is offered even to the ones that Jesus knew sovereignly would reject it. So we still give to all, but the Lord has loved us prior to all history that we're familiar with. And I think that totally changes the way that you view the church these people across the pews, the people that bug you. You're like, that is the object of Christ's love from eternity past. This creation was made as a stage for God to be a redeemer. And that person by name, in their life, that was in his heart and on his mind when he was on the cross. From beginning to end, that person is an object of God's love. So in eternity past, the Lord showed us his love, it changes our consideration. And I think this is part of what Paul says when he says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that we don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. Because we've concluded this, that Christ died, therefore all have died. Right? It actually changes our mind about the way we think about people. I don't think about you according to the flesh. We don't think about each other according to the flesh, really, according to who you obviously are right? A sinner, undeserving of grace. But when you think about, that's the, the kind of love Jesus gave me as a sinner, undeserving of grace. He redeemed me. I'm hidden with Christ in God, and if I'm hidden, so is that person who's sinning against me. That person is hidden with the Lord. I don't regard them according to the flesh. I regard them according to the new man. They're a new creation. We continue on in chapter 13. Jesus paints this picture of humility on our behalf to show us what he did for us. I'm going to read from 13.3 down to verse 12. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet, or do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to them? Or, sorry, do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus paints this illustration of his incarnation, right? That Jesus, as the one who is superior, he's the teacher, he's the Lord, right? He'll say that you've called me master and Lord and you are right. But he gave us an example that he takes off his outer garment, he wraps on a servant's towel, and then he washes them with water and that towel, and Peter, it goes right over Peter's head, right? Peter's like, you can't, you know, you can't wash, this is wrong. You can't wash my feet. You're a superior. And Jesus says, Peter, you know, you don't get it. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Well, he's like, then wash every part of me. He's like, it's an illustration, Peter. It's not a bath, <laughs> right? So Peter doesn't understand it, but what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of his incarnation. Jesus had to become a servant to wash us. And he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. But this also serves as our illustration of how we are to serve one another, right? He says, I've done this for you as an example. If I can do this for you, certainly you can do it one to another. Certainly you can view yourself as a servant to the person next to you. Right, this is the logic of Paul again in, in Philippians 2, right, where he says, I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to have the same love. I want you to consider one another's needs more important than your own. And how does he invoke that conviction in us? He says, have this mind. Consider this. Think in this way. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant, right? He took on human flesh. He emptied himself by taking on human flesh. Jesus himself became a man for you, died for you, obedient to the point of death on a cross. Have that mind when you think about what you owe to your fellow believer, right? That is how he lived for us. That's, how he, that's what he did in his incarnation. He stepped down from the throne not to attain what he was lacking, Right? Jesus wasn't bored. The Father and the Son and the Spirit were not lacking in love. But out of the pure kindness and even the mystery of his will as to why he would do such a thing, the Son took on flesh for you, took on flesh for me. And this is supposed to change our minds about what we view each other as. Right? If we are objects of the love of God, you can't fail to then become an instrument of that love. The love of God does not fail. It accomplishes its purposes. The love of God does all that he has set out to do with it. So if our claim is that we are objects of that love, we have received triune, eternal, predestined gospel love, then it is a category error to fail to love others. Right? This is why it's so important that we understand as Jesus has loved us and is even in his incarnation. And if we look in chapter 13 as we follow the logic, we know that more than just 
being an example for us to emulate. It's actually the message we're going to bring as well. If you look at verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying on the night that he's going to be betrayed, the night that he's going to depart, preparing his disciples for what they are to do, he's saying that I am sending you out in the way that I was sent. Right? The Father sent me, I send you. And if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive the Father. You bear this message. What message? That the Son came from God to redeem. That the Son came from the Father to wash people. You're bringing this message to the world. And it's in that context, as we go on down to chapter 13, verse 34, it's in this context. Let's look at verse 33. It's in this context that Jesus gives this commandment. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm leaving. Right? As I told the Jews, I have to say the same thing to you. I'm going somewhere that right now you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All that Jesus came and accomplished in his incarnation, all that the disciples will soon see, right, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all these things, Jesus has placed it within the ability of the church to represent him well through their love. It is of great consequence that we love one another, right? It's the way the world knows. It's the way the world knows that we're his disciples. It's the way that the message has weight. It's the way that a world on the outside looks in and says, what's going on in there? And we say, we're objects of God's love. The son died for us. It validates the message, and without love, it brings reproach upon the message. So Jesus, even beyond his incarnation into his earthly ministry, when he was here on the earth and he was fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf, when he's living the perfect life, I think if you just take, what does this picture in the upper room tell us about the earthly ministry of Jesus and his posture towards his followers? It's almost comical at times. If you had the opportunity to read through this section this week, you, this might ring true to you, and if you didn't read through it afterwards, this section is incredible because it's this very lofty theology, these lofty illustrations, these promises of the future, it's the indwelling of the Spirit, it's abide in me, it's some of those famous passages in the Bible. Every time Jesus is talking, it's up here, and then the disciples interject like the most human, almost stupid confusion to the scenario. Like, if you look just at your Bible here, almost everything is in red, right? It's probably, if you have a red-letter Bible, almost everything's in red. Jesus is talking. Every time you look at the parts that Jesus isn't talking or the narrator, it's the disciples getting something wrong. So, in Jesus' earthly ministry, you see very unremarkable followers. Very unremarkable followers, right? We've already seen it with Peter when his feet are getting washed. He says, no, you can't do this. And, you know, again, this is not a bath, Peter. You don't understand what I'm doing. 
And then there's this moment where the disciples are reclining and Peter says to John, hey, ask Jesus, who's he talking about when he says someone's going to betray him? And so John says, Jesus, who are you talking about? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So Jesus dips it, gives it to Judas, and everyone's like, I wonder what that was all about. <laughs> Literally, no one gets it. You continue on, Peter says that, Jesus, why can't I go with you where you're going? I would die for you. And it's in that heartbreaking profession of faith that Jesus says, would you die for me, Peter? Because I'm telling you, the crow's not going to crow three times before you, or is not going to crow before you've denied me three times. Jesus says that where I'm going, you can come eventually. I'm coming back for you because you guys know the way. And they say, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he's like, guys, I'm the way. I've said this countless times. I'm the way to the Father. I'm going to the Father. You know the way to the Father. And then Philip says, well, show us the Father and we'd be content. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can keep going, but every time the disciples interject their confusion, you do start to wonder, why are these guys the objects of love? And then you have to believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. So not only is this earthly ministry marked by unremarkable followers, it's also marked by unrequited love. When Peter makes the profession that he would die for the Lord, and he doesn't understand what's going on, he doesn't know that in part of the washing that Jesus has to do or they will have no part in him, it's his, it's his death that they need to be washed in his blood. And Peter says, I'll die for you. I, I picture like a, a father sitting over bills, right? It's the end of the month and things are not good. And the little son who comes up with a handful of change and like a button and some lint, like I would like to make my contribution to the problem. Peter says, I would die for you. And Jesus says, it's going to take more than that. This cause will not be upheld by your death. It's going to require mine. And at the time that Peter would have been required to stand up for the Lord, he flees. Even at the end of this section, right before Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 32, he says this, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. The love that Jesus shows his disciples is not given back to him. They don't stand at the hour of testing. Jesus, very much aware of what he's going to go through, takes on the burden of the disciples. I think it's so incredible as you read this section, if you look at the first verse of chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then verse 27 of the same chapter, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So on the night that Jesus knows that he is going to be killed, Jesus, especially in the book of John, is very ever aware of the hour. 
He's very aware of the moment that's going to take place. He's aware of what needs to happen. And he's telling his disciples, don't be afraid. I leave you with peace. I give you my peace. Do not be troubled. And even in thinking about the disciple who would betray him in chapter 13, verse 21, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus takes on all the burden. He has unremarkable followers, unrequited love, and an unshared burden. And in all of this, he has unparalleled success. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus loved his own and he loved them to the end. Jesus prays to the Father in verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 4. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Right, not only were his followers not of much help in the process, they, a lot of the times, were tripping up the progress with their questions, their confusion, and in all this, Jesus' earthly ministry, not marked by how deserving these people are, but marked by how undeserving they are, how did Jesus love us? When Peter would deny Jesus and Judas would betray him and Thomas would doubt him, all of them were objects of his love. All of them received love from him, undeserved. And then ultimately in his life on earth culminating in his death, we learn something very valuable that Jesus teaches us. And it's interesting kind of following on the heels of Peter saying that, Lord, I would die for you. Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 12, after giving them the command to abide in him like a vine, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. All right, someone. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You kind of get this hint at where Jesus is going. Right, the greatest demonstration of love, to die for your friends. You're my friends, hint, hint. Jesus' Jesus's death is probably one of the aspects of his work for us that we think about more than, than others. Um, when I was reading this, this book I recommended in the weekend, it's called Lessons from the Upper Room. It's really good, and there's a, a quote in there that I really appreciated. And it, it was in the context of this question of, you know, how is God loving if there's only one way to salvation? Only one way. And Sinclair Ferguson creates this hypothetical of the person who was offended at the one way, offended that there wasn't many ways to the Father, and he creates this hypothetical of the person who gets to heaven and is talking to the Father. The Father will say, I sent my Son to be sacrificed on the cross. I laid the sins of the world on him and poured out the righteous wrath of heaven upon him and heard him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think I would have done that if there had been another way? My son prayed, Father, if it is possible, let there be another way to bring them to heaven apart from the cross. Please let this cup be taken from me. But I said to him, my son, there is no other way. Their only hope is if you drink this cup and bear the judgment against their sin. There is no other way. Do you not think that if there had been another way, I certainly would have found it? Why have you despised my son in this way? 
I think even if you're lacking some of the theological terms for, hey, why did Jesus have to die? If you understand how much the Father and Son love each other, then this question of why is this the only way or could there have been another way kind of fades away. If you understand the perfect love that the Father and the Son shared and that the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son, then all of a sudden you don't feel so big to put God on the stands and say, how could you not provide another way? There's no, you couldn't sum all the other ways up to the value that the life of the Son is. The Son giving His life for you is everything. So Jesus dies for his disciples. He knows he's going to die. He knows that he's telling his disciples that the most loving thing you can do is die for your friends, and I'm doing that for you. And he also doesn't leave his disciples in despair with that. They know, they're sad that he's departing. Even though they're kind of missing the point, they're missing that his departure is going to be death, and they always seem to misunderstand that he's going to raise. They're still sorrowful, and this is what Jesus tells them. In the context of their sorrow and their confusion about, hey, you're saying that we're not going to see you and then we're going to see you, how does this work? He says in verse 20 of chapter 16, this is going to be at the event of his death. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. So in that day of resurrection, the Father himself will love you, right? The the Father himself, you're going to have free access to the Father because in that day, I'm actually going to accomplish it. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to weep. You're going to lament, but your sorrow will be turned into joy, right? Comparing it to labor, the pain and the anguish, all of a sudden when the child's born, that's not the thing you focus on. Isn't it an irony that the cross is the symbol of Christianity, not the empty tomb? Isn't it incredible that we put this really heinous image, what it would be at the time? You know, it's, it's worse than putting up a gallows or the electric chair, some symbol of lethal injection. This was invented for torture. It was invented for the pain to be so severe in public that everyone would know that person died. Everyone would learn the lesson. You would figure out, what did that person do to be put on a cross so I don't do it? But our sorrow was turned to joy. The Lord took that image, the Lord took that event and turned it for our justification. He put the Son to grief for us. And His resurrection is the proof His resurrection is the accomplishment of redemption. This last little scene that we're going to look at here is Jesus' heavenly ministry. After his resurrection, he comes back and he talks to his disciples, but ultimately he will ascend to where he is now. 
And the best picture we have of Jesus' intercession for us is this chapter, John 17. I think in the book of John, this upper room discourse feels like you've stepped into the holy place. It feels like a place you shouldn't be allowed to be. It feels like you're hearing conversations that are so lofty and intimate that you're like, what am I doing? I should not be in this room. I should not get to have the privilege of hearing what Jesus has said. And if the upper room is that place, John 17 is the holy of holies, where only the high priest goes. And it's a prayer of Jesus to the Father, largely on our behalf. It's his prayer of intercession. It's his prayer for us. And it's so beautiful. If you wanted to, you could probably preach 10 years on just the content that Jesus discusses in this high priestly prayer. But one of the most important things about Jesus is ascending to the Father, and he's already talked about this many times in the upper room, is that I need to go to the Father so that I can send you the Spirit. I need you to have the Spirit because these disciples, again, we see their foolishness every time they talk. Someone has to take the cowardly disciples of the Passover and apply the work of Christ so that they can be the bold apostles of Pentecost. Someone has to make this happen. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to apply the victory that Christ has had. He says, when I, when I go, it's to your advantage that I leave, because I'll send the helper, and the helper will remind you of the things that I've taught you. He'll convict the world, and he will bring to remembrance all these things, and he will actually speak through you. And the office that he's given these disciples of being witnesses is actually possible because of the Spirit. The example that he set of how to love one another is possible because of the Spirit. So one of the biggest differences, the crucial difference between the command in the Old Testament of love your neighbor and the command in the New Testament of love your neighbor as I have loved you is one, we had never seen anyone do it. Jesus did. We have a perfect example and we have the power in the Holy Spirit to do it. And so the Holy Spirit is sent because Jesus goes to the Father and they send the Spirit. It's essential to our witness. It's essential to our power. And then Jesus' intercession for us as well in heaven. I want to look at verse 9 of chapter 17. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus making these constant appeals on our behalf that we would be spared in the world, that we would be kept. Jesus says, while I was in the world, I was the one keeping them. Now that I come to you, keep them. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Right? We need to be witnesses. We have a job. There's a reason we didn't ascend when Jesus did. We have a job to do. But he asked that we would be spared from the power of the evil one. And in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? That's us. We're holding their word. You know, we believe because of the message has been passed down successfully. That the love of the Lord has prevailed in his church. We are the ones who also get to be benefactors of it. Another thing that stands out to me so clearly in this passage specifically, in this chapter, where Jesus is praying for the Father, is this privilege that we have that somehow, by miraculous will of God, we're wrapped into the love of the Trinity. We somehow become benefactors of the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Look at chapter 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus, having already established this pattern that we're to love one another for the sake of the the gospel witness, he says, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. There is perfect unity, perfect united will within the Father and the Son. The plan is perfect, and he says, I pray that their love has that effect in the church, that they would be completely united in love and in the truth. Look down to verse 20 of this same chapter. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Listen here. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's crucial. I pray that they would love each other and have unity so that the world would know that I came for them, and that you love them like you love me. Our love for one another is supposed to represent the way that the Father loves the Son. Put a ceiling on that application, right? Try to limit that demonstration of love. Does that not elevate the how I have loved you to, to an eternal degree? The love that the Father and the Son share? And when Philip asks, how are we going to see, or when actually with Judas, not Iscariot, asks, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and the world's not going to see you when Jesus ascends and the Spirit comes? He says the Spirit's going to come and indwell you, and he says, I and the Father are going to make our home with you. Right, so being indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, empowered for the work of love so that the message of the love that the Father has for the Son being given to a people undeserving That message has to be borne up by actual love. That's high stakes. That's of great consequence. And ultimately, even beyond the heavenly ministry that Jesus has right now, look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Father, I want them to come with me. Praise the Lord that the prayers of the Son are answered. 
I want them to be here and to see the glory that I've had with you from before the foundation of the world, and now the glory even exalted as the Savior. I want them to be with me. Jesus, before all time, loved us and set a plan in motion to redeem us. And Jesus, while he was here, loved us and set the perfect example. And Jesus, even now, intercedes for us. The Spirit changes us, applies the work of Christ, perfectly loved by the Father, perfectly in union with him. This is the church. If, as a side comment, we can say, elevate the church in your mind. It's a remarkably average group of people involved in eternal, weighty, glorious mission. We get to worship the living God because we've been redeemed and reunited to Him. And this church, Tri-City, needs to be a church that is defined by its love. Love cannot be this undefined, you know, love can't be defined, I guess, in context of saying it's not, you know, anything that's not truth. Truth is divisive. This isn't love, right? Love and truth are combined together. There is no love apart from truth. And when Paul wants to summarize what the Christian life is, in the context of saying don't return to the ceremonial law, he says it's faith working in love, right? It's working out your faith and love for one another, so the glory of the Lord that he shares with us and he shares his home with us, that's the way that we need to view one another as he has loved us. I'll conclude by just some points of emphasis, I suppose. Our love is one of compulsion. We are compelled to love. I borrow the title of this sermon that the love of Christ compels us from Paul saying the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Our love for one another has to be compelled by our understanding of the love of the Savior for us. Right? We can't just go and do what, you know, we just need to love like the world tells us to love. No, it actually has to be motivated by what the Savior has done. If his love and his home, his father, his peace, his joy, his life, his death, his works, all those things have been applied to you, but so has his mission. His mission has been applied to us as well because he says that the Father sent the Son, right? For the, God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And then Jesus concludes his high priestly prayer Verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If Jesus was sent into the world for the purpose of redemption, Jesus says, I send them into the world for the reason you sent me. They now bear the message. So we join in his mission. Our love is one of compulsion and our love is one of consequence. Right, Jesus says that he obeys the Father so that the world would know that the Father loves the Son and that the Son loves the Father. We obey Jesus so that the world may know that we love Jesus and so that the world may know that we are recipients of his love. If this section opens up with Jesus saying that he loved his own, then he loved them to the end, the very last verse, verse 26, Jesus' prayer for us, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are to love like Jesus loved. We can't exaggerate the importance of understanding how Jesus loved. And we also can't settle for just knowing it. This is in the context of a command. We ought to do it. We ought to meditate how to do it. We ought to think long and hard and stir one another up to love and good deeds. But it's never divorced from the accomplishment of what Jesus has done and understanding that we join in that mission. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we are given today a commission that you gave long ago to love like you have loved, that we would understand the logic, Lord, that says love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, that we've been wrapped up into eternal, eternity past, eternity future, Trinitarian love. Lord, that we do not deserve the position we've been given. Lord, would we be those who have no problem seeing ourselves as servants one to another because you saw yourself as a servant. That we would have no problem being patient with those who doubt and wander and are weary because that's how you treated us, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would have no problem making grand plans for your glory to share the gospel, Lord, but that we would also live in simple humble, obedient love, or that we would be taking this time now and in the future to think about how we can love one another practically. I pray that we would love you in deed and in truth, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.